Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Yordana Osman, here with my friend Chabruta and Gordon. Our dap today, Masachet Kitubot, dap Yud Gimel, page 13. Well, we're going to depart from what we've done before. Anne had to convince me a little bit to do it, <laughs> but we're not going to read one of the Mishnahs that's on the page. So there's a Mishnah that still deals with the case of Mukat 8, um, and it also explores Machlokas, uh, you know, between... Um, uh, well, basically between Rabbi Yochanan, the Gemara at least discusses the, the machlokas between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar, which was mentioned before. Um, so we sort of made an executive decision because it's a rather long dab. Um, and this a lot of this is material that we've seen before. But in summary, what essentially is going on here with the Mishnah and the Gemara is, is, you know, the woman wants to claim Mukat AIDS. And he, when it says no, Drusat Ish, right? You actually were with, uh, you were actually were with another man. And so the question is, do we, who do we believe the woman or the man? And what is the impact of that on the amount of her ketubah? Does she get, and that's what the machlokas is over. Is it that she gets a full ketubah or a lesser ketubah? That's one version of what the machlokas is over. Or is it that she gets already a lesser ketubah because the hymen is already, you know, damaged. And the question is how, or she gets no ketubah. Um, and that's essentially what the Machlokas is there. So I'm going to move on now to the next Mishnah. And we have a uh, an interesting Mishnah that basically presents two different cases where a woman is suspected of something. Um, and the first case is as follows. Um, so this could sort of be, you'll see a little bit later why, maybe something that could be in Sota, although not entirely, but... The idea here is, is that people see a woman speaking to a man and the Gemara is going to explain a little bit more. What do we mean by speaking? We don't just mean somebody, you know, speaking in the street or something like that. But the implication is, is that there's a suspicion that whatever it is that they were doing together, they potentially could have had, uh, they could have had sex with each other, right? So they say to this woman, so they say, what's the nature of this man? In other words, what's the nature of your relationship with this person who you're mitzabered with? And she answers, Ish Poloni Vakoin who? And she says, he's a man and is so-and-so and he's a, uh, he's a Kohen. Now, the idea here is being is that what she's trying to say is, is that if there is a suspicion or there are any consequences to the fact that she may have been with this man, even though they're not married to each other, um, and that's what the Mepharshim explained, that this isn't a case of adultery. It's just they're not, you know, it's somebody who she was sort of uh, alone with or there was some type of compromising position, I would say. She sort of says this is a person of the best lineage possible. We'll explore a little bit more later why that's actually a key point. Right, so Rav Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer say, okay, we believe her. But Rabbi Yeshua, man, so Rabbi Yeshua says, no, we don't believe her just because she says there wasn't anything going on. She actually has the status of somebody who had slept with a Natin. Remember, those are the Givonim. That's the group of people who sort of tricked Yeshua into converting. They weren't fully allowed. They weren't. So we honored their conversion but they sort of had a lower caste. They were the wood carriers the, and the water carriers. And 
they weren't really allowed to marry into the Jewish people or somebody who was with a mamzer. So in other words, these are men not with good lineage and they would disqualify her if she had uh, if she had a relationship with them for marrying a priest until she brings proof supporting her statement. Now, the other thing I want to point out is it's interesting because generally Rabbi Eliezer is considered to be from Beit Shammai. In other words, he upholds the school of Shammai. Rabbi Yeshua upholds the school of Beit Hillel. We know that generally Beit Shammai is considered to be more machmer. Beit Hillel is considered to be more mekel. Here we see a reversing of this. Rabbi Eliezer seems to have the more mekel approach. Rabbi Yeshua has the more machmer approach. So just pay attention to that as well. Let's say we have a single woman who is pregnant. And people said to her, What's the nature of this fetus? In other words, who got you pregnant? How did you manage to get pregnant? Um, and today I find this to be an interesting question because we know, obviously, women get pregnant without, you know, without necessarily being married. Um, and and that's pretty, you know, that's acceptable today. And so if she says, it's from this man and he was a priest. In other words, she's saying, you know, this was a person of good lineage who uh, who this child is this child's father. Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Eliezer, So Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer say we believe her. Rabbi Shomer, Lomi Nope, we can't assume that this, according to Rabbi Shua, that this Ubar, this fetus, has good lineage. We're actually going to assume the worst type of lineage and that this could be from a Natin or a Mamzer, until she's able to actually prove it. And so the Gemara begins with the following. Wait, wait, before the Gemara, yes. you're Dana, before the Gemara. So I just want to note, right, that this case, meaning this whole Mishnah, is talking about a woman who claims to have gotten pregnant from a Kohen. And I, I like how you translated it. I think the point is that there's all kinds of potential restrictions and also potential privileges, right, for the if the child is a Kohen. And the commentaries that I've seen discuss the question of, you know, is this woman herself a bat Kohen? And, you know, you know, maybe they're not going to allow the child of this union that's kind of uh, in doubt whether they're going to let the child work in the Beit HaMikdash, presumably not, but maybe the woman herself, because if she's a Bako and she'll still be able to eat Truma. Meaning, I feel like it brings up all these examples that we've discussed in the past of where Truma and the, you know, again, privileges that are accorded to the Kohen come into play. And whereas, of course, if she's, if the father is one of these Givonim, Natinim, whatever, then if she's the Bat Kohen, then all of that would still be like immediately lost, right? So the the Mishnah in kind of trying to flesh out, you know, what is her claim when she when she says that she's that the her pregnancy is from a Kohen, um, then then the question is, you know, is she deemed credible because she does she could have said something else altogether, right? Or or is she deemed not credible because maybe she wants to get something out of it and that would be positive. Right. I, I think that's, so, you know, I said before, this mishra could have been in Sota. This mishra also could have been in Nirvamos. So, you know, right. But I think that's a really important point to, to bring up that it's a question of sort of the lineage of the baby and also what advantages does she get by claiming it's sort of the highest status that one could have and all the perks that come with that with being potentially being a Kohen. The Gemara then points out something interesting about the language of the Mishnah of my Midzabere, right? What does it mean that she was speaking to someone? Would we make such an accusation about a person 
just by the fact that they were speaking to someone, Ziri Amri, so Amar, so Ziri says, Nistara, what it means is she was secluded with a man, and it's not known whether she had intercourse with that man. Ravasi Amar, Niv Allah. Ravasi says, no, it means she actually had intercourse. It doesn't mean that she was secluded and there was a possibility of it. So according to Za'eri, it makes sense that the Mishnah teaches uh, speaking. Is, is that we don't know for sure that they had a sexual relationship, but there was some type of activity that went on that made people suspect it. But according to Ravasi, why would you use the term Alia. So the Gemara says explicitly, the Mishnah wanted to use a euphemism. So here we have a, uh, a, a pasuk from Mishle, chapter 30, verse 20, that says she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. So what the Gemara is trying to say is, is that this pasuk, where she says she uses her mouth for eating and wipes her mouth and said, I didn't do anything wicked. This is a euphemism for a woman who has a sexual relationship that she's not so supposed to have. The Gemara goes on again and says, Bishlama Laziri, right? Again, according to Ziri, Hainu Diktani Tarte, it makes sense these two cases or the language around it, Midaberu Mi'uberet, right? The Tana teaches two cases of one of woman speaking to a man, one where a woman is pregnant. Tarte Lama. But according to Ravasi, if speaking literally means that she had a sexual relationship, we know she had intercourse with somebody, why do we need two cases? They both address basically the same thing. The idea is Mitzabera means we're not totally sure. Mubarat, obviously she had a, a sexual relationship with, with somebody. So the Gemara teach says, One case is to teach whether she's fit to basically marry a priest, right? And Rabbi Eleazar and Rabbi Gamliel said she is. Rabbi Yeshua says we can't, okay? And one case is to teach whether her daughter would be fit to marry a priest. Do we trust her? And would her offspring be allowed to marry uh, bear, marry a priest? The Gemara is going to go on to explore this uh, a, a little bit more and try to understand this the, the difference between Zairi and Rav Asi. But again, this is one of those great examples of, you know, where we pay very, very close attention to the language of the Gemara, it's of the Mishnah itself. The language that the Mishnah uses, how it chooses to describe a particular scenario uh, is not just by happenstance. Like it, it actually means something. And that's what the Gemara wants to explore here. Okay. I want to pick up this, you know, the different topics that come up that the Gemara wants to explore. I want to pay a little bit of attention to the reliability or the trustworthiness of this woman's claims, meaning eh, any woman's claims really in this case, right? The discussion here isn't you know, does she have a good track record somewhere else? The question is, what is her claim and can it be counted upon? Um, and there's two different, um, I don't know, avenues that come out of this on Ahmed Bet. One, I'm not going to delve into, but I do want to mention the phrase because we keep having these really important, uh, you know, principles or statements of that have a halachic implications elsewhere. This is Ein Apotropos Arayot. Apotropos is... A, is I guess technically it's translated to be a guarantor. Um, the idea that there's nobody who's going to be protecting a, a given couple from an arayot situation, from from getting involved sexually. Meaning that doesn't mean they will, 
but it means that there's no, the halacha does not presume that there's protection against an illicit sexual relation. So the fact that somebody can come along and say, no, we didn't sleep together, that doesn't mean they're not believed. It means that it's not a given that they'd be believed because there's this principle, it's too, it's too fraught, it's too, you know, you could have somebody who's, who's totally reliable, virtuous, whatever, and then, you know, even so, everybody in the couple, you know, everybody in the scenario can be, um, have a very clean slate in terms of their background. And even so, we don't say, oh, because you have a good track record, we're going to presume that there was no uh, sexual liaison here. It's an interesting, um, it's a halachic avoidance of talking about the, I guess, really the the power of of the sexual inclination and so on, right? Meaning the fact that any couple could end up in a compromised position. Okay, that's one point as a, as a I'm going to leave it as a side point. Where I want to go with this is the implication that the Gemara has not yet really addressed, which is what happens with this child, right? Meaning the Gemara has been addressing, is this woman believed? Is she believed about her pregnancy? But what, you know, the, the fallout of whether she's believed is really on the child. The Gemara talks about, cites a brighter, really, that's talking about the different positions of Rabbi Gamliel Rabbi Yoshua in terms of, you know, is she believed, where Rabbi Gamliel said she's believed. And Rabbi Yoshua says, you know, you better bring, you know, a lot of supporting evidence if you want to be believed. And it goes on to say, Here we're talking about a woman who's testifying about herself. So it's not even that you could say she's an impartial uh, witness. She's completely, you know, um, what we'll call a nogea badavar. She's completely um, invested or, you know, has a vested interest in the outcome. So what happens? The fact that she's talking about herself is about whether she's, you know, going to be fit to marry a Kohen, for example, right? But when she comes then to talk about her, the any progeny, or in this case, the discussion of a, is of a daughter, and can that daughter the, go and marry a Kohen? Well, the Gemara says, you know, we're going to take a step back and say, really, the legal status of this child, this child whose paternity is not known or is not identified, is she's considered a shtuki. Shtuki from the word, or the, the drasha is from the word shatak, right? Like um, silent, to be quiet where the identity of the father is unknown, meaning we're quiet about that, there's no knowledge of it. Um, and then and then the status here is of a suffix mamzer, that the child is possibly a mamzer because it's not clear who the father is. And then the question is, of course, who can that person, who can that child marry? You know, in the question of, is it possible that that child would then marry a sibling, and which is even you know a more mamzer al gabe mamzer, right? It makes it much more complicated. So the gemara goes on to try to understand exactly what's going on here. What happened with Rabbi Yoshua and the the bulk of the sages, right? What did he say to them, and what did he what did they what did he say to them, and what did they say back to him? This is what they said to him. Meaning, the Zayjus say to me, like, you talked to us about a pregnant woman, meaning when there's testimony about a pregnant woman, and, you, you know, in the comparison of whether she's really the woman who's been taken captive and whether she's believable, but what about the case 
of a woman who is simply speaking with a man, right? The Mishnah Yerdana that you read begins with a case of uh, the way it's phrased is that they're talking. And the fact that the meaning the Gemara goes on to say, well, this was seclusion. Not only was it seclusion, it was certain, it was certainly sexual intercourse, but that's not the phrasing of the Mishnah, right? The beginning of the conversation is literally a conversation. What about the fact that they're speaking? So Rabbi Yeshua says back to them, when we're talking about a, a, the case of a woman speaking, that was the case really, I mean, speaking with a man, that was a case where she had been taken captive. And then once she's been taken captive, the default is going to be that she um, was subjected, really, to intercourse. So this is Rabbi Yeshua being very, um, I would say very cautious in the idea that she's to be trusted um, because of, uh, let's say, because of the external circumstances. But he's also kind of bringing the external circumstances into the case. Amrulo, so they say to him, So Chazal, the sages say to Rabbi Yeshua, but that's different. I mean, when you're talking about a captive, we understand that that's different because, and again, this is not a PC statement, but it was certainly, it seems certainly to have been the mores of the time that um, that the non-Jews were presumed to be uh, steeped in sexual impropriety. So, so okay, so say, the Shvuya, fine, we understand where the assumption comes that she's been subjected to sexual intercourse, um, but here, in this case, like, why would you say that, Rabbi Yoshua? Amar lahem, Hanami, kevan de istatar, ein apotropos larayot. So he, here Rabbi Yoshua says, well, it's the same thing. I would argue that perhaps it's not the same thing. But Rabbi Yoshua's position is here because she's there's been seclusion and we have this principle of the ain't up a triple slayout, but there's nobody to there's no way to to guard against sexual impropriety. Presumably the very fact that there was seclusion is enough to say that they must have slept together, which I think is perhaps unfair. Um I mean, I don't think perhaps it's unfair. I think it's unfair, but I understand where Rabbi Yeshua is coming from in terms of, you know, establishing very firm lines in the sand. Don't seclude men and women, uh, you know, in this position, in this context, men and women should not be secluded. And then there's never any uh, concern that there would have been the sexual intercourse to begin with. Um, Okay, I'm want to just jump down to a little bit more about this Stuki case, the, like what happens here, right? Because she's the the question is, um, we have here. Uh, I'm going to read it inside. I think it's just a little bit easier. Um, the question again is, can this woman marry a kohen and could her child marry a kohen? So Amar Biochanan, I'm towards the end, moving towards the end of Amabet. Rabbi Yochanan says, those who say that this same woman is fit to marry a Kohen, meaning they're accepting her position that she's fit to marry a Kohen, um, would also accept that her daughter can marry a Kohen. And those who would say that she's not, that she cannot, that she's Pasul, would also say that the daughter is Pasul. But Rabbi Lezer says that there's, that we can we can actually say that she's fit, but that doesn't mean her daughter is fit because of the unknown status, the unknown identity of her father, of the child's father, means that even though we know that the woman herself might be deemed credible for the liaison, 
It doesn't give us an identity of the father to make sure that she could really, you know, who, who the child could then marry. Um, and this then is the, the crux of it, right? The Gemara goes on to say, because the woman herself already has a chazaka, meaning a, she's in good standing in terms of her own validity, let's say, or a state of um, fitness for whoever she's going to marry, whereas the daughter doesn't have that because the identity of the father is completely unknown. Now, why the identity of the father is completely unknown is also not exactly clear, meaning in a case of... I don't know, you know, uh, we could come up with cases where the where the woman herself doesn't know the identity of the father. Um, <clears throat> and some of those cases would involve promiscuity and some of those cases might involve rape, meaning none of them would be a particularly happy story. But a case where the world doesn't know the child's father is inherently different than the case where the mother doesn't know the child's father. Right. It's the, the question here seems to be where nobody the, the status of a Stuki is that she doesn't know. The mother truly doesn't know and, and can't find out, um, which is I find it to be, you know, a, a much more foreign concept for our times, as we keep saying so many of these things are, because I don't know. Nowadays, you've got DNA testing, meaning there's so many different ways that you could um, determine a child's parentage besides just what the mom, what the mother herself has to say. Um, okay, I think I can stop here, but I encourage you all to read the, these cases at the very end of the daf about the shuki inside, because because at the, at the very end of the daf, it really goes into this question of, you know, how do you determine whether the child is a shuki, where the parentage, where the paternity is unclear, um, and therefore you run into the question of, you know, is a child fit to marry whomever, whatever, or is a child not a stuki? In which case, you know, then then we don't have to worry about this and these factors in the same kind of way. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. It's an interesting case, particularly because today, with genetic testing and you know interventions that people use, it, it's just it's a totally different world uh, in the modern world about these types of things about questions of origin. Um, but it's really interesting to see the, the Gemara grapple with it and keeping in mind that in our world today, I'd love to see what the discussion would be because it would be really different. Well, I can tell you, meaning there is some, listen, there's still the kind of case, right? Like of a one night stand where the strangers in the night and lo and behold, the woman gets pregnant and she never knows, she never determines who she was with to begin with, right? It, that person, for the sake of our conversation, that person, that man would have to be Jewish for this to be a relevant concern of Mamzerut, right? So that already, like, depending on how we're going to build our scenarios, you know, to explore the parameters as we like to do, as the Gemara likes to do, um, it becomes, you know, it, it reduces the the likelihood of that particular scenario by a lot, right? Um, but there, there are those who would say that, you know, anytime you don't know the true identity of the father, let's say, right? Then, then, um, then that's a shtuki. Isn't that what we how we've just defined it? And I would say that, for example, nowadays in the world, there's a good number of children, happy children, right, who are sometimes the children of a married couple, where the fa- where the biological father of the child is a sperm donor, 
right? And people do this because that's, you know, sometimes a, a man has a low sperm count. This is an issue of infertility and this is a solution, right? So the question then is, is that child, and I'm, I'm picking, you know, an extreme case because here's a child who's walking through the world thinking that that man who has raised the child is in fact his or her father, and but it's not, but not biologically so. And biologically is what, what the halacha is concerned about here, right? So is that child then a stuki who thinks who thinks that the identity of the father is known? And the answer is the identity of, of the father, I mean, you still have to worry about things like kahuna and everything from the biology, but it's not, the child is not a stuki because, because the parents have all, maybe the child doesn't know and maybe the world doesn't know, but the parents know or the sperm bank knows or the doctor knows, right? Like there's, there's a lot of information that's out there even before you get to genetic testing. So it, this is why I say this is a brave new world. We haven't eliminated the cases that appear in the Gemara, but a lot of the cases that might look at first blush like the cases in the Gemara really are not. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.